All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra. Ezra chapter 9 and 10. We're going to finish the book of Ezra this morning. And we're going to look at repentance. Look at repentance. How do you fight sin? And so Ezra 9 and 10 is our text. And I understand it's a, a very special day on many occasions. Celebration with baptism, a public display of the gospel, that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the grave, that Jackson and Ellie are dead to sin, have new life in Christ, have been forgiven of sin through faith in Christ. I know that today is also Father's Day, also a good and tough day, depending on where you are sitting. And the topic today is how do you fight sin? And it's a call to men in the room, especially heads of families. How do you protect your family from the greatest enemy? We're going to look at that. And then, obviously, today is also Juneteenth. Special celebration of when finally news got to Texas, letting enslaved people know that they were free. It's also known as Freedom Day. And there's a, a gospel picture there in that. Something that happened years ago, Jesus on the cross, is great news today in that it sets us free. It took two years for the great news to get to the enslaved people in Texas, and today there are still people that have no idea that they could be set free from their bondage to sin that is in Christ because of what has been done for them. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus and the church and our mission. We've got to get the news to the people. Today, Ezra 9 and 10. You know with Ezra chapter 1 through 6, you see a pattern. The, the people are in captivity. They return from exile to Jerusalem. They start to build the altar and build the temple, but there's opposition and the work stops. The neighboring community are against them. They lie about them saying, hey, don't let these people build. They cause trouble. And the work stops, but we see how the word of God motivates the people of God to continue working. And we see the temple is built and completed. But this pattern repeats itself again. And so Ezra 1 through 6 takes years. And Ezra chapter 7 and 10 takes one year. And it's another group returning from captivity to Jerusalem. And they have a mission. They're going to teach the word of God. Now that the temple's completed, they're going to show people how they are to worship God. And yet there's opposition. But it's not opposition from the neighbors, it's opposition from within. Sin has entered the camp. And we see that repentance is the answer to sin. Now, as long as we keep that in context with, oh, that happened a long time ago, it doesn't have anything to do with me, this time is wasted. But we know this in the room. We know this about ourselves. All of us. All of us should be struggling with sin, meaning we should be fighting sin. And it doesn't stop until the day you meet Christ. Fighting sin. How do you do that? 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Now, I think this is interesting. If you remember from Ezra in chapter 8, the, the people, they're going on this journey, and they have thousands of people. 
And they have small children and husbands and wives and daughters and sons. And they're going on this 900-mile journey with a lot of valuable stuff. Gold, silver, vessels for the temple. And it's dangerous. They have enemies. There's bandits on the road. And what do the people do? They fast and they pray asking God for protection. Do you know that's not the last time Ezra fasts? Now, I would argue that in this room, I think we understand prayer for safety from those outside. We, we pray for safety in our schools. We pray for safety on trips. We pray for safety in our neighborhoods. Like, we understand the real threat there. But what I want us to see is the urgency at which Ezra attacks sin. You see, sin is in the camp, and what does he do? He fasts and he prays because he understands this. Just as enemies were a threat on the journey, sin is a threat in worship. This is a very serious thing. Sin will rob you of your relationships. Sin will destroy your joy that's found in Christ. Sin will destroy marriages and the parent and child relationship. Sin will make you something you're not at work make you something you're not at home sin will promise the world but only leave you with guilt and shame and yet there's a cross and the message says forgiveness and that's what I want I want us to know how do we fight sin and it's a biblical word called repentance it's changing direction it's leaving sin and clinging to Christ that's what you see in Ezra 9 and 10 and so Ezra arrives with the exiles He's teaching the word, and then they find out that they've married all sorts of people. And the problem isn't the marriage, the problem is the worship. The problem is the worship. In Ezra chapter 6, we see when the temple's built, everybody's celebrating Passover who have separated themselves from other gods. You see, holiness is the issue. All are welcomed in who have left other gods and cling to the one God. But here, what we see with Ezra in his day, men and women have married other men and women and are going after other gods in six different nationalities, six different countries, six different gods. And some of those gods have all sorts of wickedness. And all of those gods lead away from God, the only true God. And some of those gods, you sacrifice your child to appease a god. In some of those religions, you do all sorts of harm to your family to appease God. And God is saying that is wicked. Now, you're like, ah, Ben, that's a little narrow-minded. You're saying Jesus is the only way, and, and that's not politically correct anymore. This is what God says. This is what God says. It would be like, I'm married to Julianne, and I just date other girls on the side a little bit. Now, I'll tell you, Julianne, Julianne, you're a little narrow-minded. You know, that's, if you don't think I should date every day of the week, maybe just every other day of the week, some of these other girls. That's laughable, isn't it? But you know what? We do the same thing with our God. We serve a jealous God who deserves all glory, all praise, all worship. And when our heart goes after these other gods, it would be like me telling Julianne, I'm just going to date other women for a little bit. It's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And I hope we see the significance of what God is calling us to. 
and the joy that's found only in God. Sin will rob you of that joy, purpose, and peace. And so we see this issue. We see how Ezra prays to God, confesses, and the people come, and they weep bitterly. They pray, and they confess, and then they turn from their sin. And we see how deep this sin has gotten to their lives. And I know in this room, while all of us are dealing and fighting with sin, there's all sorts of issues here. How do you fight sin? You might say, Ben, I've tried this, I've tried that, it's not working. I'm still experiencing guilt here and weakness here. Join the club. That's all of us. But we're called to fight it together. And our hope is found in Christ. And the cross is the answer. And that's what we're going to see here. So, with that said, we're going to work quickly. If you want notes, because there's ten steps here, and I'm going to fly through. If you want notes on this, let me know, and I can email it to you, or I can print out a copy for you. So don't get mad if you miss a, a word. But here we go. John Owen and his mortification of sin. It's an old man written in an old book. But this is what he says, and many of you have heard this quote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no neutral ground in your walk with Christ. There is no neutral ground in your walk with Christ. He takes this passage in Romans 8.13 and explains it through this book. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Grant Gaines has a great article about nine characteristics of how do you kill sin. And that's what we're going to go over because you see those in the book of Ezra. All right, so buckle up, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, I thank you for who you gathered here this morning. Father, you have a word for us. I pray that you open up our eyes, open up our hearts, and see what you have for us to see and hear what you have for us to hear. Father, I pray that you see, uh, that the people will see grace offered to them, that we still are a people with hope, that today you are calling us to turn from sin and cling to you. You're an awesome and gracious God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Number one, diagnose sin's severity. You see this in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with all their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled this holy race, this holy people, with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in the unfaithfulness. Now, real quick, there's so many things here that I want to make sure is clear. This text is not about interracial marriage. This text is about unholiness. This text is about when you marry a woman who refuses to put away her gods, when you marry a man who refuses to put away a different religion other than Christ, it's wrong and will lead to sin. It is also not calling people to get divorced over disbelief. That's a different text. What this passage is teaching is how to deal with sin and how not to worship other gods. This text is about holiness, and right off the bat, you see the diagnosis of sin. The leaders are leading the people in this sin. This is a severe problem. This past Wednesday, James, when you sat down for Bible study, there was a spider underneath your chair 
that we did not want to mess with. As a matter of fact, when you go to step on this spider, your shoe bounced off of him, right? Now, this is very, very important. I brought up a, a memory, and he was talking about, man, I don't know if this is a brown or clue spider or not. I don't know. I know this. I didn't want to pick it up with a cup and have it get on me. So thankfully, we had a brave man, Daniel, come, smash. And then we pick it up, throw it away. Now, we diagnose the situation, I believe, correctly. We don't play with what could be poisonous spiders. I told them that we had a football player. The only thing that brought this guy down, he's 6'3", 6'4", 270, massive man, loved these cutoff shirts because he let his gut hang out. He was proud of it. And he sat right next to me on the line. And, and I felt safe with him right next to me because he pushes everybody around. Well, that year he got bit by a spider. He thought it was a pimple. Didn't do anything. After a while, his leg starts turning purple and red. Starts swelling up. I'm like, Bobby, you might want to go get that checked out. He's like, ah, oh, it's, it's all right. I just got it. It's not a big deal. Finally, he goes to the doctor. The poison almost got to the bone. And he, they said that he was a couple days away from having his leg amputated. You see, if you don't diagnose the severity, you're in trouble. Now, don't miss the point because of the illustration. Some of us in this room are dealing with sin that we're saying, hmm, not a big deal, not a big deal. I've got it under control. It's not doing anything. It's none of your business. It's not your problem. Don't misdiagnose the severity of sin. God has so much more for you. And watch the joy that will come when you leave it and cling to him. So right off the bat, you see the severity of sin. But then we keep moving. And as we read through chapter 9, we see that we understand the consequences of sin. The people are returning from exile. Why are they in exile in the first place? Sin. They worshiped other gods. They married everybody, did everything, and said, eh, it doesn't matter. And Ezra reminds the people, hey, hey, don't forget what has happened. Four things that happen when we sin. Number one, we're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're saying it's not that big a deal. Not that big a deal. It's not, that, it's not your business. I can handle it. Number two, God's temporary discipline. That's why the people were in Babylon. That's temporary discipline. God still does that to his children. He's saying, hey, don't keep hurting yourself, pursuing that sin. Return to me. The Bible talks about how God disciplines the one who he loves. The third thing, we lose peace, strength, and hunger for God. There was a director in the IMB missionary board who said the number one thing that keeps couples off of the mission field is pornography. It says that we have couples that refuse to turn from lusting and will not go to the missionary field because of it. Sin will zap your hunger for God. And then finally, danger of eternal destruction. Danger of eternal destruction, showing that maybe we were never a true believer in the first place. We see that sin grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. Sin makes a mockery of the sacrifice Christ made, and it can cause the believer to lose your usefulness in ministry. Unfortunately, we've just seen that. Report comes out. Sin costs many people their ministry. If you want to be useful to the ends of the earth for the glory of God, you've got to cling to Christ. You've got to leave sin behind. 
James 1, 14 and 15 says this, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's always consequences to sin. You want to know what's hard? What's hard is seeing those consequences up front. Sin always looks good. It always looks attractive. When Adam and Eve are looking at the fruit on the tree, it wasn't a rotten piece of fruit. It looked good. When David's out on the balcony, he sees a beautiful woman. Sin always looks attractive. It always ends in death. Make no mistake. And so one of my prayers that I pray for myself is that God will give me a long-range vision when sin is so attractive. Where does this lead? Oh, it's going to ruin my marriage. Nope. Oh, it's going to kill my relationship with my daughters. Nope. Oh, it's going to cost me my job. Nope, I'm not going to do that. Oh, it's, it's going to destroy some friendships and some trust. That I've oh, it's going to kill the reputation of Christ. And I'm not going to do it if I can see the consequences. And maybe that's something you should pray for yourself as well. Number three, be convinced of your guilt. Be convinced of your guilt. In Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, if you're taking notes or if you have your phones, write this text down. Write this text down. Every believer should know this verse. This passage, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. We see Ezra returns, and what's Ezra devoted to? He's devoted to studying the Word, doing the Word, and teaching the Word. And as he holds up the Word, the people see their flaws in the reflection of the Word of God. As you dig into the Word, you're going to see where your life doesn't align. And that's the opportunity to repent and get back in line. You see this again and again in Ezra. In chapter 9, verse 6, in the first part of 7, "...and prayed, I, I am too ashamed and disgraced." My God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our deeds, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. He understands where he sits. He understands that he's guilty. Ezra 9.10, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands, or verse 15. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We, have, we are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, none of us can stand in your presence. You want to know what the awesome part about this text that we see in Ezra 9 and 10? This time, as they hold up the word and they see their guilt, they know they're guilty. They know they're guilty. This was, I'd say this was about 11 years ago. I, I was in my upper 20s, and I still thought I was in decent shape. Still thought I was in decent shape. We leave middle school out on a, a student life camp over the summer, and there was an eighth grade girl talking trash about how good she was at swimming. She had won this many medals over the school year and over the summer, and I just happened to stand up and say, you know what? I bet you never reached Barracudas at the YMCA swim team which I had done. 
We took swim lessons back in the day, and basically, if you could jump in the pool, you could be a barracuda. I thought the name was cool, so I said it. I thought, ah, I'm just going to give her a hard time. I'm not going to say anything. That was it. Well, we get to the camp, and guess what they have? A swimming pool. But not one of those little outdoor pools, one of those full-size Olympic-length pool. And she comes by, and she says, uh, Ben, you know what we could do? We could race. And, she, of course, she has her friends with her, and they say, oh, yeah, Brown, you got her. You got her. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got her. So we get our swimsuits on, and we go out, and before we start, she goes, hey, Brown, we probably need to go down and back to make it a legit race. And I'm thinking, you know what, it's pretty far down to that end. <laughs> but, okay, look, I just said it with confidence, oh, we can do 15 laps, whatever you want, is what I said. What I was thinking is, like, I might be in trouble. So we kick off, and we go, and, and I've got the lead early on, and I'm feeling pretty good after about 10 yards, and then it kicked in. I started not to be able to breathe, and I'm trying to reach up, try to find some air somewhere. My muscles are tightening up, and I haven't even gotten to the first wall. Well, I get to the wall. She does this thing called a kickflip, which apparently is kind of important in swimming. I don't know how to do a kickflip. I get to the wall. I stop. Oh, air. And I start to go back. And I'm behind. I start to panic. I start flailing, going. Well, there's a rope with those little buoys that show you that you're in the deep end. I hit the rope with an arm. I finally get off of that. I start swimming, trying to catch up, pick up the pace. My swimming trunks start to go down. I go, this is bad. I'm in a predicament. I pull up my swimming trunks. I start swimming. I can't catch her. She whoops me. Kids are laughing at me in the pool. I get up. I'm just glad to be alive. This is what I found out. When I jumped in the pool... And everything was not hidden. Everybody could see. I could see myself for who I am. By that age, I was already out of shape. And I had no business challenging any students to anything. The same is true when it comes to the Bible. When we come to the Bible, it judges us. It lets us know exactly who we are and where we stand. And we have to face the facts. All of us in the room are guilty of sin. It might look radically different depending on the age and life stage that you're in, but all of us are guilty. And you want to know what I found out? I don't have to convince too many people about their guilt when it comes to sin, but you want to know what I think we do? I think we forget about how holy our God is and how wicked our sin is. I think we get comfortable with it. But as you read the Word, we realize we've got a problem. When everything's laid bare and we have to give an account to God, there's no hiding in our sin. The good news is we don't have to hide in it. Why? Because it's covered. It's covered by the cross, covered by the sacrifice of Christ, covered by His forgiveness because we get His righteousness and He paid for our sin. But we have to know, we have to be convinced of our guilt. Number four, we have to desire deliverance, earnestly desire deliverance. This idea, I don't want to sit here and stay in here. I don't want to be around this anymore. I want out. I want out. And that's exactly what you see in Ezra. In Ezra 10.1, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down, that sounds like a guy that wants out. He said, I don't like being in this sin. we got to do something to get out. And then, it's awesome. The men and women and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. They want out. If, if you want to be set free from sin, if you want to fight for holiness in your life, you got to want out. 
You, you can't flirt with sin. You can't flirt with disaster. You've got to desire deliverance. Ezra knows where this road is leading. They've been on that path. And he wants off of it. Is that true in your life? Maybe you've been fighting a sin, but it just keeps on seeming to come back. Have you given up? Are you still fighting? Maybe there's something new in your life. It's a new life stage, and you're like, man, I've never had any problem with this. Now you're struggling. Do you want to be delivered? In 1 Thessalonians 1.9b, we read, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the opportunity we have. You can't serve sin and serve your Savior. It's either or. It's not both and. And for me, what I want, in the words of David from Psalm 51, 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. I love the picture of the father and the prodigal son. The son has this in mind. I've wasted all my father's money living wickedly however I want to. I'll go back and see if that will hire me to work around the farm and I'll survive at least. He has that view of his father because he knows how wicked he is, but he doesn't know the grace that is his father. And the Bible teaches that as he was still a long ways off, the father gets off the porch and runs to him. That's a beautiful picture of our God. It's a beautiful picture of our God. If you don't have the desire to be delivered, you may not know God. The grace that he will extend your way is something to desire. And so maybe today you need to pray, God, you've got to convict me of this sin. Give me the desire to turn. And watch how God works in your life. Fifth, look at how we are wired. Look at how we are wired. Each person is wired differently. Some go with aging, some of the stages of life, some go with certain circumstances. Um, each of us are wired and prone to different things. Some of us struggle with money. Some of us struggle with pride. Some of us struggle with gossip. Some of us struggle with depression. Some of us struggle with lust. And the list goes on and on and on. So look at how you are wired here. What Ezra is doing for the people, he's saying, hey, we're surrounded by other nations going after other gods. You have to be careful. You have to give thought to your ways. How are you wired? I, I know this. If I'm struggling with just frustration, I'm tired, and, and I'm just aggravated, you want to know what I can't do? I can't get on social media. So if I want to find bad news, I'll find it. Or, or watch your ABC News at 6.30, and that'll really lift you up. I, there's certain things that I just I can't do. I've got to get out. If, if I struggle with alcohol, there's some things I've got to do. I've got to get the bottles out of the basement. I can't go to the bar, and I can't hang out with certain friends, even though I love them. I know that when I'm with them, I'm going back down this path. I can't do it. That's how I'm wired. I can't do it. However you're wired, you get around this certain group and you start talking bad about people, especially middle school for some reason. This seems one of those stages where we love to rip other people because we're not super confident in ourselves or confident in who we are in Christ. And so we'll talk about other people. And so one thing that I'm going to do, try to do for our family as they go through those stages is, hey, 
Lift people up. Find your confidence in Christ. Ignore what other people say. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? But that's one of those stages. High school. What are some of the things high schoolers are prone to do? Follow the crowd. DeMarcus, what are some things high schoolers are, are troubled with? Language, drama, all sorts of stuff. Identity on how many people like a social media thing. Right? And so, hey, as a church, if we know that, that's one way we can pray for them. Like, we're fighting a battle together. We don't say, well, you just got to do better. No, we, we go and we pray and we lift them up. All right? What are some things older, retired people struggle with in that stage? Loneliness, health, funds. Absolutely. And, and so, what do we do as a church? Yeah, we love it. We've got your back. We're there for you. We are your family. We don't just say it because that's what we've always said in church. No, that's a biblical picture. Like in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We treat older ladies like mothers and older men, like fathers and younger men, like brothers and younger women, like sisters. Like this is the real picture of the church. And so if we know this, different stages, and we're prone to different things, we know how to fight. All right, next. Not only do we look at how we're wired, we also get out and stay out. Look at the circumstances that cause you to stumble and never, ever go there again. Look at how you're wired. Look at when it happens. Make adjustments. This is like coaching 101. If so-and-so gets the ball all of the time and runs this way, we're going to make adjustments to stop that. It's the same thing in our life with sin. Ezra 10, 10 through 11, they made an adjustment. They said, hey, this is our sin, and this is how we're going to deal with it. I'll tell you a, a brutal picture, one that's tough for me. If I was serious about losing weight, there are two things I'd have to change right now. Two things that I have to change right now. Number one, Julianne asked, hey, I'm coming home, I gotta stop, do you want anything? Yeah, I'll take a snack. Peanut M&Ms are my weakness. But she didn't get the regular pack, or even the shareable size, she got the bag. And I just, take that as a challenge that I need to finish those in a night, right? I didn't. I shared with some of my, my kids. Not much, but a little bit. And then sweet tea. Sweet tea is a killer. If it's in the fridge, I'm going to drink sweet tea. I don't care what goal I've set for my weight. I'm going to drink sweet tea if it's in the fridge. But you want to know what? If it's not in the fridge, I'm not going to drink it. That's the same thing with sin. If you're dealing with issues on the phone, get rid of it. Change it. Change your patterns. If you have issues with certain friends, you might have to change your friends. We had a guy talk to our leadership academy at Holmes, and he said, you can still have them in your heart, just don't have them on your hands. And what he meant is you can still care for people, but you're going a different direction, so don't be going down the same path as them. I don't think we understand the people we hang around with influence us so much. And if you don't like where you're going, look at who you're hanging with. And if you want to avoid sin, that's very important. Do your friends infuse a thirst for God in your life? Do they challenge you to walk with Jesus? If not, keep going after some other friends, because they'll be around and be that friend. This idea of fighting and getting out and staying out, the best way to beat temptation is to stay and avoid it altogether. 
I, I did, I, there's, there's parts of my life where, man, I did this so well, and there's parts of my life where I didn't do this so well. And my prayer is moving forward that as different things come up, I fight at the beginning and not at the end. You also see this with Jesus. You remember in the garden? He says, hey, pray, watch and pray. Tells Peter, hey, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, watch and pray. But what do they do? They fall asleep. They fall asleep. I want to be proactive in fighting sin. And one of those ways that, that I'm proactive in fighting sin is not going down the road uh, that leads to it. What you watch on TV, the music you listen to, the people you hang with, the thoughts that fill your mind will either help you in your walk with Christ or lead you further away from Christ. Ask God to give you wisdom. Ask the Spirit to guide you in how to deal with and make good decisions on all of that. Number seven, sound the alarm. The best way to, to uh, kill sin is when you first have sinful desires. You saw the path that we read in James where desire leads to sin. Here, Ezra hears about it, and then he's encouraged, hey, you've got to act with courage. Now's the time. Don't put this off. We've got to do something about our sin now. Grandma Brown gave me a great example on how to fight sin, right? And, and I, I put down sound the alarm. Uh, so if you ever have an alarm system, you come in the wrong door. The alarm's going off as soon as you open the door. As soon as you break the seal, the alarm sounds. Grandma showed me how to fight sin. At, at Grandpa's house, he has this garden, and his garden was awesome. As a kid growing up, it was it was a huge backyard, and you got a path around the garden, and you just got rows. You've got green beans and tomatoes and corn. And Grandma was walking me and my sister down the path on the right side, walking towards the red barn. And we're going, we make it down the hill, and we go back up. And right about that time, Grandma goes, stop. And there's a snake in the grass. Now, it was not a gardener snake. I don't know what kind of snake it was. She says, Ben, stay right here by your sister. Don't move. She scampers off, goes to the barn as fast as she could, grabs a shovel, comes back. And I'm thinking, oh, she's just going to take the snake, throw it over. Honestly, I didn't know what Grandma was doing. Grandma looks at that snake. Wham! I'm in second grade. I'm thinking, whoa, Grandma, I'm never going to mess with you. Then I started feeling sorry for my dad and my uncle. I'm like, whoa, whoa, she's tough. But you want to know what? She understood something. I ain't messing around with a snake. We're not playing games. I'm going to chop its head off. As soon as I see it dead, doom, gone. It's not going to bite my grandkids. It's not going to bite me. Gone. Same is true with sin. You want to know the best time to fight sin? As soon as you're convicted of sin. It might be a thought. It might be a look. It might be a commercial. It might be a situation. Get out. Get out. Uh, Joseph gives us a good example of this in Genesis. There's this lady that's after him, and he goes into the situation, and she had emptied the house, and it's just her and him, and he, she comes to grab him, and as soon as he sees it, what does he do? See ya. He gets out. You can't linger when you're fighting sin. You can't linger. You've got to get out. You've got to kill it right when it shows up. Is that what you're doing with sin? Is there something in your life right now that, well, it's not that big a deal, not that big a deal, and you're allowing it to grow and grow and grow. Um, there's a passage that talks about how sin so easily entangles. You know what happens eventually? It chokes the life out of you. You're not created to walk in shame and guilt. You've got a race, and it's marked out for you. 
And if you want to run it with endurance, you've got to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. All right, so that's number seven. We're almost there. The next few will go rather quickly. Number eight, meditate on God's glory. I love this. Ezra's prayer starts with their sin, but it gets to the glory that belongs to God. In chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, it says, Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God, repair its ruins, and give us a wall protection in Judah and Jerusalem. He remembers the grace of God. Then in verse 13, what has happened to us is not a result of evil, is a result of our evil deeds and great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and given us a remnant like this. I love Ezra gets his eyes on God. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Write this down. Make a note of it. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. If, if you want to fight for holiness... If you want to fight for holiness, you've got to get your eyes on God. And the best way to do that is be consumed with the Word of God. Is be consumed with the Word of God. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your Word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's an amazing thing what happens to how awesome sin looks when you behold the awesomeness of God's glory. There's a song that talks about how everything grows strangely dim that this world has to offer when you get your eyes on the glory that belongs to Christ. If you want to see sin for what it is, get your eyes on God. It's an amazing thing in the Old Testament and New Testament when God shows up, guys that we would call good hit the ground because of their sin and the holiness of God. There's something about the glory of God that will turn you from your sin. So get your eyes on his glory. Number nine, don't rush to comfort. And this is, uh, it's an amazing, the process that happened in chapters 9 and 10. They didn't stop until they actually repented and got back in line with the word of God. Don't declare victory when there is no victory. I can remember Grant County football last year. You guys remember. We're out there. They didn't cut the grass. They thought they, that would slow us down. We whoop them in the first half. And then we make this great decision. You know what? We can give our guys some rest. Well, they rested a little too much. Third quarter, Grand County started scoring. Fourth quarter, it got a little closer to comfort. I'm looking at Coach Neville's rock over here. He's not worried at all. After the game, I ask him. He goes, I got a little nervous. I got a little nervous. You don't put the bench in until the game is won. It's the same thing when it comes to sin. Don't think you've recovered don't think you've repented until you've put sin to death and then finally and i'll leave you with this confess and forsake sin this is what you see in ezra 9 and 10 sin had entered the camp ezra's like no we're not going down this path we're turning from it that's got to be our decision every time we deal with sin we need to confess it say god i am guilty and i'm turning from it and then watch what happens first john 1 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When God looks at you, he's not seeing your sin and how messed up you are or I am. What does he see? He sees the righteousness of his son because he paid for it on the cross. He took my sin and my guilt and my shame, nailed it to the cross, and I'm covered by a sacrifice. So that before God, I'm as righteous as Jesus is, which is perfect. 
So I confess it and I turn from it and I rest in his forgiveness. We also see in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knows how bad you are and how bad I am. And yet he still sends his son to die on the cross in our place. In Romans 6, 23, wages of sin is death. Gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is yours. Sin leads to death, but there is a gift that has been given. Jesus lays his life down, paying for our sin. And then, last one, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So why did I continue this series on Father's Day? This is why. There's a, there's a lot of things, no matter how good of a father I am to my four daughters, I fall way short of the father I have in heaven. And this is what I mean. Even when I sacrifice and I'm serving and I'm trying to help the girls, I'm trying to be the best husband I can be the way Christ is for the church, I fall way short. So what do I do with that? Right? And I think sometimes that sits heavy on dads and fathers and men sits heavy on women this is across the board though sin always sits heavy on us or it should and i want you to know you're not fighting this alone this is our fight together in ezra's prayer he says hey we have sin our sin is before us and yet there's hope and i want you to see that i want you to hear the warning nowhere sin leads but there's hope and that hope is in Christ. And that shame and that guilt can be removed. You can have new life in Christ. You can be forgiven. You can have a new start. And maybe you need that today. I know this. As a follower of Christ, I need forgiveness every day. I need a new start every morning. As a father, I need a new start every morning with my girls. I'm going to try the best I can to point them to Christ in every area of their life. And listen, I'm learning. Right? I'm learning, what does a high school girl need? What does a middle school girl need? What does an elementary school girl need? What does a one-and-a-half-year-old need? One-and-a-half-year-old, a little bit easier. All she needs is Cheerios. Right? And so I'm, I'm trying, but it's a process. And you want to know what? I've reached the, the stage in life where you start getting worried about how am I going to pay this bill and how am I going to earn this and how am I going to do this? And so as I see that sin, that desire, like, oh, where's our security come from? It doesn't come in a bank account. Where does it come from? comes from God and who we are in Christ that's security and he has a plan for our life and so I'm just saying all of this about why Ezra 9 and 10 on Father's Day make it personal make it personal just like the people had hope when they found they were in sin they turned from it and they found grace from God you too you too when you deal with sin will find grace in God his name is Jesus and he forgives and he cleanses from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our community and in our church. Lord, I, I pray for those in the room. This is a tough message. And Father, I pray that we see how gracious and awesome you are. I pray that we behold your glory, that we see sin for what it is, turn from it, confess it, forsake it, and get back to walking with you. I pray as a church you help us do that for one another. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.